Dennis Kinlaw was the president of Asbury College for 18 years, leading the school through the 1970 revival. In 1983, he founded the Francis Asbury Society to promote the message of scriptural holiness. We hope you enjoy this message from Dr. Kinlaw. Let me read for you a passage of scripture which you know, but just let me read it to remind you of the context and the thrust. It was the last night of Jesus' life before the crucifixion. He had with him the ones whom he loved the most dearly, his disciples. And he was sharing his heart, opening it to them. And he said, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. He had just told them he was going to leave them, and they were heart sick. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine, and declare it to you. You and I have the privilege of living, though we stand in a very different relationship to it, to what may be the most interesting moment in human history. Now, it may be that uh, my age makes me want to believe that I've lived to that point. But frankly, as I read history and as I try to understand what is taking place in the world, I do not think there has ever been a moment like this before. So that there is not a person in the world today that is theoretically beyond the reach of you, beyond your reach, beyond the reach of the gospel of Christ. So there is a sense in which you ought to thrill at when God has permitted you to live and what he may permit you to see, but better what he will, if you want to be, what you can be a part of. Now, at the same time that that's true, I find a deep sadness in my spirit when I look at our own country, because it is clear to me, it seems, that we live in a period when the Church of Christ may be weaker than almost at any other point in my lifetime, and I think certainly than any time in this century. You know that the Church of Christ is making very little impact on our society today in terms of transforming that society and in terms of really challenging it. Yet the ironical thing is that there never has been a moment in American history when evangelicals have had more exposure and more access to the public mind. All that you have to do is think of what what has happened in radio and television in your lifetime and in the latter part of mine. 
I can remember, of course, the first great TV preacher in this country who happened to be a Roman Catholic, uh, Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen, who was an incredible preacher. But uh, you think of the way now we not only have radio programs and TV programs, but we have networks, Christian networks. So that a friend of mine told me about uh, being in a country in Africa recently, and he said there were two networks, the national network and an American Christian network. So we have uh, an access to the public today as we have never had before. You see it in some other ways. One of the ways that you see it is in terms of literature. You probably are not aware of this, and there's no reason why you should be, because you have not lived through the change. But one of the most dramatic changes in America in the last 20, 30 years has been the appearance of Christian bookstores. I can remember when you had major cities in this country who hardly had anything more than a bookstall where you could find a few, a very limited selection of Christian literature. I remember what a surprise it was to me back in the earlier part of this decade when I found on the front page of the Wall Street Journal an article on Christian publishing and on Christian bookstores. And the article went on to say that at that time, the trade in Christian books in this country, in Christian bookstores, and whatever else is sold in Christian bookstores, was something between a billion and two billion dollars. And they said before the decade is out, there's no question, it will, be, it will run somewhere around nine billion dollars a year. So there never has been a moment when there has been as much Christian literature scattered around. In fact, it's hard to escape either the TV or the literature. Another thing is that in the end of this century, there has been a remarkable emphasis upon the Holy Spirit. In my lifetime, one of the things that I notice is the shift from, say, the 1940s and 50s and 60s to the present time and to the latter third of the 20th century, the heavy emphasis upon the Holy Spirit. Here, TV radio look at Christian literature without the person in the role of the Holy Spirit. Now, that's why I read the passage that we read a few moments ago, because Jesus said he would send him to take his place. And when he came, he said he would convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. But the interesting thing is, it's almost as if the more we talk about him, the less we're convicted of sin. And the more we give attention to him, the less we know about righteousness. And the more he becomes central, the less we fear the judgment that is to come. It uh, is almost with an increase of conversation about him, a decrease of impact on our culture. Because you will notice that the moral breaks in our day have been among our own spokesmen. And it's very significant that the moral breaks came among our spokesmen before it became such a tawdry story in the political realm. Could it be that the collapse of morals among us helped lead to the kind of thing that our country suffers at the present moment? I think I could make a biblical case for that. Because you will remember that biblically, appeals for revival are never directed to the world. 
directed to the body of Christ, to the church, to the people of God. If my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my faith and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will heal their land. So one wonders if the place to start is not with us who talk so much, but know so little about the holy impact of the Holy Spirit on sanctifying and transforming the moral character of human lives. Now, it's interesting that over the last few decades, we have had great emphasis upon the gifts of the Spirit and the gifts He gives. We've had great emphasis upon the miracles that He can do. I do not want to speak against that, because uh, we have a son, right, who went into medicine, was operating one day on a girl who'd been on the drug route and was loaded with a de- very deadly form of hepatitis, and the other one of the other, the other surgeon's hand slipped and he cut our son. And our son was scrubbed out of medicine. He was told to go home, come home, and die. Because it was, he could not find a dentist who would clean his teeth. But God touched him. And today he is the father of four and is a practicing physician in emergency room medicine and is a committed Christian. So I do not want to play that down at all. But I just want to simply say where we have placed the emphasis has been from the gifts and the miracles and the manifestation. But if you will notice the biblical text here, the thing Jesus spoke about was, he said, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict you of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Now, there are four texts in the New Testament that I would like to refer to, cite for you, that have to do with relationships to the Holy Spirit. Two of these have to do with the relationship of the unbeliever, the non-believer, to the Spirit of God. Because, you see, there's nobody who escapes him. There is not a soul in creation that escapes the Holy Spirit because he deals in prevenient grace with every person who exists. He is the one who woos, in the name of the Father and the Son, every person who lives to bring that person to redemption. But as he woos, there are those who resist and who reject. And so you get an interesting text in the close of Stephen's apology, his defense, you will remember, before the Sanhedrin in Acts 7. He speaks as he comes to the close of that witness of his to the people that are getting ready to kill him. And he says, you do always resist the Holy Spirit. And because they resisted the Holy Spirit, they were able to join in in killing Stephen and giving the world the first Christian martyr. Now, second text is in Hebrews 10:29, where he is speaking about uh, how we should respond to the Spirit as he moves among us and how Christians should respond. But he says there are some who have d- done despite, they have trampled underfoot the blood of the covenant, they have trampled underfoot the blood of Christ, and they have done despite unto the Spirit of grace. 
A newer translation says they have outraged the spirit of grace. Now, there are many in our world who do resist him. And there are many in our world who outrage him. But that's not my problem. And that's not yours, probably. Our problem comes in the other two texts that I want to mention. One of these is found in the Ephesian letter. Paul is writing to a church that he loves very dearly. And as he writes, he speaks and says, In contrast to the world, you've learned a different Christ and a different way of living. If indeed you have heard him and been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and you are to be renewed in the spirit of your mind so that you may put on the new man. The difference when Christ came to you should be the difference between an old person and a new person as he transforms your life. That new man who was created according to God in righteousness and in true holiness. Therefore, put away lying. It's not appropriate for Christian believers. Each one speak truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. We belong to each other. Why should we lie to each other? He says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath nor give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him work. I suppose that could be translated, let him who cheats quit cheating, but work. (laughs) That might be more applicable at some point. Working with his hands and his head what is good, that he may have something to give to him who has need. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Now that's an interesting expression, isn't it? Grieve the Holy Spirit. You know enough to know that once it's mentioned, and you may have thought of it already, it's impossible to grieve somebody who doesn't care for you. If he's a casual acquaintance, you may offend him, but you're not going to grieve him. And if he's an enemy, you certainly are not going to grieve him. You may anger him, but it's only one who loves you that you can grieve. And Paul speaks and says, you, because you're Christian believers, you can grieve the Holy Spirit. Now, the second text to believers is found in 1 Thessalonians where Paul is writing one of his early epistles to a church that had responded very positively to the gospel. down now to his conclusion, and he is telling them the kind of persons that they are supposed to be. He says, See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. Rejoice always. That's interesting, isn't it? His word to his new Christian friends. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything, and he makes there no footnotes for exception, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench 
the Holy Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, test all things, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now do you notice the word? You caught it where he speaks and says, Do not quench the spirit. And you know, one of the more modern translations says, don't put the fire of the Spirit out in your heart. Because when the Spirit of God comes to you, there's a burning within, a yearning within. I don't know about you, but as I've gotten older, I've decided that's the greatest gift that God can give to a person. A yearning and a hunger where your spirit longs and you reach out for him. You want him. But he says you can quench that longing. You can put that fire out. So the longing is gone. And now you're cold. And you're dead within. And there is no response to him. But he said what I really am concerned about is that you let him, it's interesting, Paul's language, sanctify you. Now, you know the word sanctify simply means to make holy. I was grateful that we sang the hymn that we did earlier, that that our musicians played for us that, because that is what Christ died on the cross to do, to make you and me like him, holy, like God his Father, holy. And it is the Spirit that takes what Jesus did on the cross and works out that redemptive power in my life and character until he, the Spirit, transforms me and puts some echo within me of what is in him, the reality that is there. And so Paul says, and I can understand why he says, for goodness sake, don't quench the Spirit. Because if you quench the Spirit, that transformation stops. So don't grieve him, and don't quench him. Now I thought, how could I illustrate that for us in a way that it might come home to us a little more closely and a little more poignantly? You know, one of the priceless things about Asbury is that all of us don't come from the same background. There's a variety among us. And it is a family, but it's got a significant number of different members in that family. Now, I came from a United Methodist background. And so Asbury educated me on worlds that I never knew existed. And one of them was the Salvation Army world. I had never had any contact with the Salvation Army. And so here was Andy Miller and Lee Fisher. And Andy said, I've got a street meeting to hold in Lexington. Will you go with me? And the place where he wanted to hold it was on the University of Kentucky campus. And so he got me on the University of Kentucky campus, and here came the co-eds and the fellows. And uh, here he was out here beating the drum, you know, and running his street meeting. That's not the way I worship God. And then he turned to me and said, Ken Law, you give your testimony. Scared the willies out of me. I thought this was a different breed of cat. And it was. But that was part of the beginning of an education of something precious. 
because I found out that the first seat down here on the, in the center section, on the back of it, when there were tags on the back of every seat, had the name of a Salvation Army commissioner on it because he was one of the key persons in the history of Asbury College. But then I found this story. It was a young Salvation Army officer in London who was a very aggressive, capable person, gifted. And he rallied his troops, the ones that were around him, in his corps and some other corps. And a revival broke out in the heart of London. And people began to get converted, and the army began to grow in those areas. The corps grew. And so the leadership took note of it. And one day a friend turned to Albert Arsburn and said, you were going to have a visit from your superior. And when he comes, he's going to suggest breaking up our segment of the army here and scattering us. And he said, we've just got it where God's blessing, you ought to fight it. And Albert Orson said, I'd never do that. But in due time, his superior came and did exactly what had been warned. And he said, when he began to tell me that he wanted to divide us and break us up, he said, I began to fight. Fight for what I wanted. And as I fought for what I wanted, I grieved the Holy Spirit. I never had the privilege of meeting Albert Arsman, but I heard him give this on tape. And he said, when the Spirit grieves, the Spirit leaves. And he thundered, did you hear me? When the Spirit grieves, the Spirit leaves. But he said, of course, I was a Salvation Army officer. I went ahead, accepted the assignment they gave me, and went through all the motions with a heart that was empty and cold and sterile. Then he said, I had an accident. It was me in the hospital. And when they released me from the hospital, he said, I was still in, kept in bed for a while to recuperate fully. And he said, in the emptiness of my heart and in the loneliness of those moments, I began to realize what I had lost. And one day as I lay there in the room next to me, I heard some singing. And it was some Salvation Army officers. And they were singing the hymns that I knew and that I loved. And I found myself broken in repentance. And I pled for God to forgive me for my self-will. And I pled for him to return again to fill my heart. And he said he did. Then he sat down and wrote a hymn. Listen to this. I love to use this with preachers. Because there's something about us that's so common. We're all so much alike that I know that when I use this with preachers, there are going to be some of them at the altar after because it speaks to our condition. Now, before we turn to the one you've got, listen to this. This is what he wrote first, as I understand it. Savior, if my feet have faltered on the pathway of the cross, if my purposes have altered and the gold be mixed with dross, isn't that interesting? 
gold is the work of the Spirit, and the dross is mine. He said, if the gold be mixed with dross, oh, forbid me not thy service. Keep me yet in thine employ. Pass me through a sterner cleansing, if I may yet give you joy. And so he wept out his repentance to God, and the Spirit of God came to him. And then, if my chronology of the army and of Osborne's life is correct, he wrote this hymn. And it's the one you've got. And I want you to look at it with me. If you don't have a sheet, look at the one that's next to you, because the poetry is remarkable. You will notice he is speaking, praying to the Spirit. Spirit of eternal love, guide me, or I blindly rode. You wonder what kind of experiences led to that line, don't you? Where he had gone his own way and ended up in darkness. So he says, guide me, spirit, or I blindly rode. Set my heart, and this first verse is about the heart. Set my heart on things above. Draw me after thee. Earthly things are paltry shows. You know what the word paltry means? Despicable, cheap, trivial. Linked with show. That's a pretty good description of the world around us, isn't it? Plenty of show, but paltry show. You see, the Spirit of God had helped him see, and he could see through the sterility of the world around him. Phantom charm. Earthly things are paltry show. Phantom charm. It's all right to draw me, but when I take them, I find they're phantoms, they're illusions, and there's nothing real there. They come and go. Give me constantly to know the thing I need, fellowship with thee. You know, there are times when I think we'd do better if we preached fellowship instead of salvation. Because you know what I think we do? We say, well, I've been saved. But the question is, are you walking with him? Do you know him? And are you living in unbroken communion with him? That's what the Spirit of God is after. So he says, come, O Spirit, take control. Where the fires of passion roll. Let the yearnings of my soul center all in you. Call into your fold of peace, thoughts that seek forbidden ways. Come and order all my days. Hide my life in you. Do you ever find yourself wishing somebody could corral the thoughts that seek forbidden ways? He speaks to us, does he not? Thus supported even I, knowing thee forever nigh, shall attain that deepest joy, living unto thee. Now, will you notice these next four lines? Four of the most powerful lines I think I've ever read. No distracting thoughts within. I did heart. A heart single. No surviving hidden sin. I'm not protecting anything within. It's all laid bare to him. 
Thus shall heaven indeed begin, here and now in me. Fellowship with thee. Fellowship with thee. Give me constantly to know fellowship with thee. You know, I believe if we get our attention on walking with him, we'd find the power in our midst that would rebuke a sinful world around us and would make an impact on a culture that is coming apart because we are not what God wants us to be. Have you let him really do his sanctifying work within your heart? Are you letting him do that? It can only be done when you live in continuous, continual communion with him.